how do I go from where I am, you know, maybe four or five stores in a single market to become a national retailer? Many in our category have gone and done that buyer acquisition and they have failed dismally. You acquire different cultures, different formats, different inventory. The very clear thing for us was we're going to grow organically. Welcome to Scaling Up, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. This podcast aims to tell the stories of great Australian growth companies as told by their founders and CEOs. Visit the website tdmgrowthpartners.com. Hi, I'm Ed Cowan and thanks for joining me on Scaling Up. I have the pleasure of chatting today to Matt Spencer, the CEO of Baby Bunting, Australia's largest baby goods retailer. This is just a great story, tracking the strategy and execution of a small Victorian-based family-owned and operated business that emerges into the leading national retailer in the category. Matt gives amazing insight into the playbook of how this all unfolded. In the last 10 years, Baby Bunting has grown from $40 million in sales to over $350 million, and it's growing earnings at over 30% annually. Baby Bunting is now 20 times bigger than its nearest competitor, and this just didn't happen by mistake. I personally loved hearing about the importance Matt placed on taking an incremental approach to executing this strategy, understanding how each building block could add to the next and the prioritisation of these. Above all else, though, there is a continual theme that shines right throughout this interview, and it's the importance of a great team in supporting a CEO or founder in all aspects of his role. Matt is one of the most humble CEOs you'll ever meet, and I shouldn't be surprised. There are great stories of him flying across continents on red-eye flights just to save a night's accommodation. But to hear the baby bunting story firsthand, it was a privilege and it was incredibly inspiring. The last 20 minutes... Matt dives into his experience not only in transitioning baby bunting from a private to a public company, but also the life of a CEO and the lessons he's learnt along the way. For any ambitious entrepreneur, I think this episode is a must listen. Matt Spencer, welcome to Scaling Up. Thanks very much, Ed. It's great to be here. I think before we get deep into the baby bunting story, it might be worth giving some history and some context as to how... Uh, the business evolved even before you got there. So maybe I'll give a little bit of history and you can fill in some blanks as to where I go wrong because you know this much better than I do. Sure. But you just celebrated your 40th anniversary. So 1979, Baby Bunting opens. Family business all the way up to 2008. At that point in time, five stores, Victorian-based, Quite a big family business, $40 million in revenue, making about $5 million bucks a year. Very little infrastructure, no centralised warehouse. And at that point, a big figure in the story, and I know we'll touch on this probably a bit later, Barry Saunders, absolute veteran of the retail scene in Australia, comes into the business. And he's a guy that had run Target, he'd run Big W, he'd run Repco, and the reject shop as I said, a veteran of the industry. And he saw this opportunity for baby bunting to be a category killer. He, he thought babies and pets, there are two categories in the Australian landscape that hadn't been dominated. And he saw the baby industry highly fragmented in 2008. And he thought, what an opportunity. He's in the business for, you know, three or four years, growing the business, I think up to Roughly $100 million, 12, 13 stores. Yeah, a little bit more than that. But, uh, yeah, certainly uh, he, was, he was in the business at, at that critical time. And, uh, and I, I guess from my point of view, he was the architect of how to take baby bunting from a, from a family-based organisation to a, a national chain store retailing business. And um, as you've alluded to, a CV, that's pretty illustrious and I think probably one of the very few privileged people who have been able to work for Barry but actually to learn from Barry. I mean this was my first job as a CEO. Um, he just taught so many lessons in retail, retail strategy, looking globally at what has occurred in other retailers 
who had become category killers. And we, we certainly look towards Bed Bath & Beyond overseas as, as one of those businesses. And I think our journey is sort of paralleled quite, quite closely with what Bed Bath & Beyond has done. But I think Barry, you know, very early on in the piece, apart from recognising the opportunity and Pets and Baby are right, and those are emotional categories for families, what he, what he did was he laid out some very clear principles that we would stick to in, in, in forging the history or forging the, the story of Baby Bunting to where we are today, you know, 53 stores, over 360 million in sales, and a great bunch of people with a great leadership team. And uh, it, I'm sure we'll come back to Barry because he is so central to this. But just zooming in on, you know, 2011 when they need... Barry decides to step away from the business. He, he's getting perhaps uh, too old to, to be in the hustle and bustle and the search goes out for a new CEO. And there's Matt Spencer, CEO of Kathmandu. Phenomenal brand. I think you needed a bit of convincing from what I hear as to take the job and I'm interested as to why. Yeah, look, um, it's an interesting piece and, and we're sitting here today in our, in our Maribyrnong store and this is where all my interviews happened, but actually on the shop floor, not necessarily in, the, in, the, in, the, in this back office Fantastic. where we're sitting today. But I was with Katmandu and I, I ran the retail side of the business and that included store development. I had a, an office in Christchurch and I had an office in Melbourne and I loved the brand, I really did. And what did I love about the brand is because it was something that was so familiar to me. I love the outdoors, I love just getting out there doing things. I love retail and I've been in retail for you know, most of my career, but checking in and out doing different different things at times. You know, one of the things about the business here is we're a family business. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're about supporting parents um, in navigating the way through early parenthood. And at the time I had a young family and I was getting on a plane sort of virtually every second week to go to New Zealand. And also I was looking at store development. We were doing much like Baby Bunting, we were rolling out stores. And so when you head up the store development and, and, and property section, you had to go and visit. For every store you put on the ground, you probably visited maybe 12 or 13 opportunities. And that meant you know, national travel in Australia and travel throughout New Zealand. And really, it wasn't sustainable to run a, a, a career like that with a young family. And, and I've always and always will maintain that family is your number one priority. It's not, not about dollars. It's not about business. It's actually about your family. And I've worked in banking, I've worked in petrol, um, I've worked in supermarkets, and I learned that you weren't the most popular guy at a, a barbecue on a Sunday afternoon when you said you work for a petrol company, they hate petrol pricing, or you worked at a bank and there's bloody bank fees, or you work in you know, supermarkets and the queues are too long. And what I learned about Kathmandu was the joy of the customer. It really brought that piece back. And so coming to Baby Bunting, the, the business was very immature at the time, it had a very clear strategy. I didn't have that emotional connection that I originally had with Kathmandu, but the thing that actually got me over the line was we had a, you know, TDM was a very important part of that and, and I could see the, how would I put it, the, the excitement, the opportunity that, that Tom at the time was sort of articulating about where this business needed to go and Barry was there saying, actually, this is the strategy and these are the retail credentials. And I could actually see the, the opportunity from a learning and development point of view, but I could also see the opportunity mm. from a category point of view. What really turned it over for me was I actually took time out on a Sunday before accepting the role and I went into a store. And it was busy and the customers were there and they were excited to be there and they wanted to be in our stores. And that was the, the absolute trigger point that says, this is for me. Because like Kathmandu, it was a brand that was positive. It added value to people's lives. People would walk into, into the store on a mission that was a positive mission in their lives versus going to a petrol station where it's a grudge purchase. I've got to put 140 bucks worth of fuel in my car. I don't want to touch the, the nozzle because it's a bit dirty. And it's in and out type, yeah. type retailing. And whilst it's exciting from a, from a velocity point of view, it didn't have that customer experience. And so if you go back to it, the simple thing was, what a great business with great customers and great opportunity. I love how your own personal alignment of values was such a, a big part of that piece. And I think there's, there's a great lesson for everyone because I think the longevity of, A, what you've created and 
your own enthusiasm for the job now in 2019, you know, eight, nine years on with still plenty more to play, I think it's almost that, that, that alignment piece has been so, so key, it seems. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's what wakes you up in the morning. And, you know, the funny thing is we've got an enormous amount of distance to cover still to be even a better support to parents. And, we, you know, so we're only scratching the surface mm. at the moment in our business. But it's easy to wake up in the morning and work for something that you believe 100% in. Really, it's, it's so easy, yeah? It's just enjoyment. And can you describe when you did decide to take the job, what you walked into, maybe just to provide a little bit of colour and some context? What was the culture of, of the business? What did you see initially? So it, from the outside, it, it looked as though you walked in and you saw... 50 things that needed to be done, but were very slow in your approach in, in knowing exactly the order of events that needed to be executed. And we can come back to that, but I am interested in your initial impressions. I walked into a business that financially, you know, had invested to grow uh, and that had put its own stresses on the performance of the business. And it was a small business. Um, and when I mean small is we'd invested in offices that were too big for the business at the time that we knew we needed it in the future. It was quite unsophisticated in terms of systems, but we had a roadmap to go on that. I, I think you used the word slow about, you know, we had a whole lot of things to do. I used probably turn the word methodical. Mm. We, had a, we had a very clear plan and we were, you know, what we needed to achieve. And the trick was actually trying to work out, a bit like Tetris, as to what part to do first and what competencies we needed in the business. And you're right, the first, you know, I sat in, you know, in an open plan office next to Barry for, I don't know, eight months or so. And every day you just, your list grew of what were the opportunities. And it's actually, how do you actually distill those down to what are your top two or three things mm. that you had to achieve that year? And what were the functional priorities and you know, what really came right up front was having the right people, the right team around you to actually help you make those decisions yeah. because I'm one person out of a big business, or big in some contexts, smaller than others, and I only know what I know. I can be a generalist in a whole lot of stuff in retail, but you need functional expertise. And those functional experts, if you get the right person they will help you navigate to what are the priorities and what are the decisions you need to make. Just touching on that, you clearly identified who you thought could help you scale this business, but there was some executive turnover, I think, new CFO, new head of merchandise, new head of IT, new head of logistics. But at the same time, you kept some really key people, people who have become really key to your business, people that come to mind, like a Michael Payne, who, who was the CEO of a family business now, still in the business with you today, it, it says, A, to me, that you can identify talent, but also that you must be a great coach as well because people have obviously been on this journey with you throughout. And so I am interested to know how did you see these qualities in people that you knew could help scale this business? You know, people make the difference real and some of these people make a, a real difference. And all of them do. I think, you know, you, you sort of alluded to the fact that there has been some executive turnover. I don't think we've ever had somebody who was not fit for purpose mm. in our executive team. You know, there's an age and stage and there's a, a skill set that you have there. But one of the most important things that an organisation needs to have is the right culture. And Michael is actually a manifestation and representation of that culture. Um, he's with, been with the business since it was a family business, and before that he ran the, the operations for Baby Co, which was, you know, 32 stores, I think, at the time. You know, when I roll out a store today, you know, we're going to be opening Doncaster soon, I can guarantee you that the culture for people in that store will be exactly the same as the culture that we have in Myri in Western Australia, and neither would have ever met each other, neither would have ever spoken to each other, but it's that talent identification about what we need from our people in our store level that actually he brings and he, he puts that sort of magic dust over yeah. over the, the operations. And and the coaching really is to take it from, you know, a family business of five, six stores up to, you know, 80 plus stores and operate in a chain store manner. And so the, the development, you know, Michael's been successful being able to transition that, which not many people can actually do. Absolutely. Because it's a, 
it's a different mindset yep. because you can't be the person changing the light bulbs every day and also, you know, opening up new stores and coaching and developing regional managers across the country. So he's been absolutely fantastic in our business. And there's been a lot of people like that. And we've got some, you know, our longest serving employee is a guy called Jimmy Zacharopoulos. And uh, Jimmy Zach's been with us for 29 years. He's gone from no warehouse to multiple warehouses to half a warehouse of 5,000 square metres to 10,000 square metres plus three three BLs <laughs> and all this and forever growing and developing. And, yeah. and it's so good to see that people are able to adjust and change. And, and it's, it's, it's through the talent of the, the leadership team that you're able to take a person on that journey and change them and give them a, a development and a direction over time. That must give you great satisfaction as well. Oh, every day, every, every day. Um, uh, it's... I'm just privileged, really, to work with a group of great people. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind that people and culture are the heartbeat of high performance. There are so many other... You can talk about killing the category and how you did it, and we will get onto that playbook, but at the end of the day, it's, it's executed by the people, and if the people are wrong or they don't have the skill set, or they don't have the same values that the business does, it's, it's never going to be executed as well as it can be. Yeah, and it's interesting. You can tell performance. Uh, when, if, if you have a look at our stores, if you can imagine a, a list of all our stores in a row with sales for the day, and everybody's tracking at one level and somebody tracks at a different level, by and large, it's a people issue. Mm. And can and you track that down to who's on duty? You can, you can get down to that level. Yeah. Um, you obviously want to see some sort of trend occurring. Sure. But I have never worked in a business where the individual at the store level makes such an enormous difference to day-to-day performance. So, you know, we, you can tell if, if the management's away on holiday or, you know, off on a training course. You can, you can actually sense those things it's, and, and it, it's very, very clear. And, and we're, we're lucky. We've got a group of really good managers and a great team at store level. And one of the first things that we put in place into our business is actually to have consistent store structures, consistent area management structures, now we've had to break Australia up into two regions as we've grown and scaled because people just make such an enormous difference to the performance of your business. The theory says for businesses or retailers to kill the category, they're creating enough scale so that they have enough power with their suppliers to reduce the price. They can then reduce the price on the floor, increases volume, increases sales creates more scale and the virtuous cycle goes on to the point that there's such margin advantage over the competitors that the competitors are squeezed. They can either match you on price and lose because the margin isn't there or they lose the volume. And so the category killer exists because there's then one dominant retailer. And we've seen it in the Australian market with Bunnings is is another great example. And there are lots of ingredients that go into this playbook and I'd love to unravel a few of them. So the most important thing is, is there's a very clear plan. I mean, you talk about a category killer. I mean, we, we still price matched over 300 various different brands or retailers last year. So there's still a lot of players out sure, there. Sure, but, but it's fragmented. But, but it's fragmented. At so the we're the only end. national retailer sure. of baby goods. So really what what is so important is that, you, you know, you have a plan that you start off with and says, you know, how do I go from where I am just a single you know, maybe four or five stores in a single market to become a national retailer. And so how do you move through that phase and do it effectively? Many in our category have gone and done that buyer acquisition and they have failed dismally. You acquire different cultures, you acquire different formats, you acquire different inventory, aged inventory, you acquire different debts, you acquire so many different things that are not yours. So Mm. the very clear thing for us was, we're going to grow organically. And we grew to a plan. So we had a very clear network plan. Um, The other thing about it is that uh, when you do start to become larger and more important to suppliers, I don't like to use the term power. We just want to work with our suppliers to get the best outcome for our customers. And if we can do that in a partnership approach, it's a Mm win-win. And so that's what we try and work through in our business to make sure that we can bring great value to our business to our customers every day, and whether we're doing that through better supply chain, whether we're doing it through better buying terms, whether we're doing it by product differentiation, building our own private label, getting exclusive products. 
they're all ingredients that make up a, a really important mix that brings you know the baby bunting as I guess the largest retailer of baby goods in, in Australia. But I'll go back to really at the start there was a plan and that plan we look at every year and it incrementals over you know eight points. Every year we look at those eight points and say well how do, how do they actually change year on year and what is the next level of progression. So if, for instance you know we, we will market our goods you know, across channels. Well, in 2009, we only started the internet retailing then in 2009. Yep. And the, the whole idea is, you know, how do we incrementally grow that? How do we incrementally grow our store network? How do we incrementally grow our, our product lines? The easiest thing to do, for instance, in, in our world is to go, let's shrink the products now because then, you know, chop the tail. Well, no, that's not what we need to do. We need to expand, blow out the product range to make sure that we've got the widest assortment for our customers and great value every day, every visit. So implementation of the Best Buy program, you know, EDLP. It actually sort of says that, you know, we're not running a high-low catalogue model all the time. And a customer can have confidence in that value mm. statement. So there are a whole lot of different ingredients that come into making a, what you would term a category killer. It's not just one thing. But you have to have the right people making the right decisions across a number of areas. Let's let's dig a bit deeper here. Sure. And uh, you've taken the words out of my mouth. The, the the incremental approach has been so consistently uh, applied here. And and one example that comes to mind is when you uh, when you first arrived at the job, you th you thought the brand needed a, a refresh. That was 2011, it's 2019, and Baby Bunting's about to go through a, a full rebranding. The point being that that was identified, but there are a whole heap of other really important factors that you identified. You came from Kathmandu, a, a brand that, the brand is important. You could have spent a lot of money at that point in time, but instead you decided to incrementally ensure that the customer was being looked after with, as you say, everyday low prices, knowing that the customer proposition every day was going to be uh, something that they could identify with. And, and so this incremental approach, I, I, do, I do want to dig into as to how that was staged out. It's funny. One of the things that was actually when I was first thinking about joining the business was actually I couldn't identify with this baby clinging to a bee, yeah? Um, and it was, you know, almost like a hand-drawn baby wearing, a, you know, a baby wearing a nappy. And I used to drive past this, we had, I lived close to the original Baldwin store, and that baby was, you know, 30 plus years old and, and looked every bit of it. Mm. And I just, you know, it, it was, it was, it sort of graded on me. But the, the, one of the first things that we, we put in place was we actually did a brand health survey and we made a commitment to do a really in-depth survey and we do it biannually and we've been doing that. And that asks a lot of questions about the brand and nowhere, were the customers saying to us that brand is dated, mm. old-fashioned? It just it just wasn't a feature of what was important to them at the time. So it sort of gave me a sense that there were other things that we had to do before we had to actually uh, really change the brand. Plus, I think you've got to look at where we are in the stage of our evolution, and that is, you know, we're now in one of the largest shopping centres in the world. Our brand needs to stand up against the greatest international brands mm. and the greatest domestic brands. And it has to, you know, sit in that portfolio. And therefore, there's now a, a real commercial requirement to build that. Plus the fact that the font doesn't exist anymore and you can't <laughs> replicate that baby in a digital way. But uh, those are just minor details. So anyway, so I'm, I, you know, there, there, there was that need to, to change. So then it was, once you get, get over that part and you, you, can, you can deal with your friends and you can deal with people saying the baby's problem then it's actually what actually will deliver great value to the customer mm. because once you've got the customer on the hook it's actually clear that you can start to grow the business and you know traditionally in um in this in this category there's been large domestic retailers so in, in queensland there was bubs you know they were the the most popular brand of specialty retailer for baby in queensland there was you know there was babies galore in in um in Sydney, and they were taken out by, or bought out by Mothercare. Um, you know, there's still a very good operator there, being Sydney Baby Kingdom or Baby Kingdom as they're known. Every city had a their own retail, but nobody was building out into into a national footprint. So, from my point of view, really, 
I always go back to what was our key themes that we were working to, you know, the property strategy, mm. you know, it had to be in convenient locations and the elements of the, the format, you know, what, what has every store got to have for our customers? Yeah. I mean, we will not open a store that doesn't have parcel pickup. We will not open a store that does not have lay-by facilities. We will not open a store that doesn't have parenting rooms. We won't open a store where there's not dedicated car parking. And we won't open a store where you can't have, you know, car seat fitting at the store. Yeah. So, you know, you can get the most sought after location, but if it doesn't offer those attributes, we're very clear our format needs to have that because that's the customer value proposition we put forward. So as you go through and say, well, how do you organise? You've got to always invest to grow. So what, what are those underlying things? And for me, there's, there's three very clear areas. One is building the best teams, having the right people around to support the growth story, having the right IT systems and business processes to actually make sure that uh, we have the technology to support our business growth. And the third one is getting control of the supply chain, so having the right logistics infrastructure. You need to invest in those three things to keep growth occurring. And so, you know, we're going through this machinations at the moment about what we need to do with our next generation of our warehousing and logistics because we've just reached that point where it, it needs to occur. But we're constantly doing that ahead of the curve. Yeah. Yeah? So at times it's quite difficult because you're investing in infrastructure, capability and systems when you haven't got the the revenue, but you know that will drive the revenue. I think that's great leadership, isn't it? At its heart is, is having a vision and executing and this incrementality we keep talking about, the 1% is that up. And so you become whole pretty quickly. Yeah, I must say, I, I think the guys around me get a bit bored of me saying to them, you know, it's the one percenters. It is the one percenters because yeah. they do add up and it's, it's so critical, you know. Excellent execution every time is just, you've got to do it. And it's those one percenters that make all the difference in the business like ours. You're listening to Scaling Up with Ed Cowan, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. TDM Growth Partners is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing private and public companies. TDM Growth Partners, investing in and helping build businesses we are proud of. You've touched on the customer proposition. You've touched on the importance of the one store format and, and I know that you've just moved to shopping centres and that provides a, a new challenge in itself. Yeah, we did do a regional format. Um, so we, when we went to the smaller markets, so the Bendigo's, Ballarat's of the world, we, we had to bring a smaller, smaller format to market. But all were the same. Whilst it's a smaller store, we increased the size of the, the fixturing, so the height, just to get the range in, because the range is a clear differentiator for us, and we still had all the attributes that yep. I've talked about just before. We haven't necessarily touched on customer service. I know that is also, the customer is key to your proposition, how Baby Bunting loves the customer and, and owns that experience for them. Maybe you could give some insight into, you know, your approach to um, recruiting, and, and hiring staff for the floor. In this business, unlike, you know, we, when we look at our, what happened with Babies R Us, Toys R Us, um, their model was not high touch service. Whereas we've taken a clear position that says we won't compromise on that part of our business. Investment in, in people and investment into the shop floor and to deliver service to our customers is so important. That doesn't mean we don't have issues with customer service. I mean, our stores are so busy. I mean, they transact significant volumes and you can never service a one-to-one -one relationship all the time. But so there's elements of the customer service and the customer journey that you have to keep on focusing on. And it's an incremental approach. You know, how do you make the, the processes more seamless? So, you know, moving the counter from the middle of the store to the front of the store. They are all things that actually are done not, not, not only for, you know, convenience point of view, but it's actually, it's all about getting the service model better on the floor. Your question's a very interesting one about, you know, where do you, where do you find the team and who, who, do, you, who do you recruit? Um, and you talked a bit earlier on about, you know, employing mothers. I think we're actually employing parents. And as I found, I was aligned to the brand was because I was a parent myself. And, if, and, and that's going to be a really competitive advantage for us going forward. And as I alluded to earlier, we, we need to do better for our team who are parents themselves than we do today. Yeah. And that's a really exciting thing for me. I think that's the, the next journey because at the end of the day, I'd love to be the, the, you know, the, the best employer of parents 
you know, in the country, in the world. I don't know. But it's going to be something that the journey we need to embark on and do a lot more on. So I've got to work on that, that part. But recruitment on shop floor, um, it, there's a real combination of do you go for people with the skill set of being a parent and understand the journey that a mother or father is going through? Or do you go with somebody who's just got retailing experience and they've had, they might have worked the shop floor at mm. even, you know, the reject shop, Rebel, Woolworth, Target, Kmart, wherever. What's the more important uh, attribute to have or the competency? And I think parents mm. actually went out because it is such a daunting experience, especially for the first time parent, which is probably our biggest customer segment. Couldn't agree anymore. Uh, and one last question around the, the playbook. Yeah, in this day and age, you can't afford not to be a, an omni-channel retailer, and, and by that I mean not just have these fantastic stores, but have a, a great online experience as well. And it's something that you have worked very hard at. We have, and um, you know we've we've evolved with our with our, with our online offer. And what what we've done is we've mapped the customer journey, and really what it's saying to us is that people are spending more and more time doing their research. Uh, so we've just invested in a new website platform. Whilst it's got some issues at the moment, we've only just recently gone live on it, what it is seeing is a lot more traffic and what it is seeing is that, that it's, it's based on an engagement model. So what's happening is people come onto our website to look at product, but then to get informational content, they go out of our ecosystem. Yeah. So we're trying to build that single ecosystem that you can look at the product, but you can actually read the article about you know, how best to feed your baby or what is the best nutritional aspect or do I want to see Sam Wood about, you know, some yeah. personal training or those those sorts of things. The so content piece now is, is so important. You're it right. is so important. You, you, you can't underestimate and, 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 and really invest in that piece. So that, to us, is a, a, a massive journey. And then how do you actually bridge that online, offline experience? So when you come into store that, you know, can you get the same information at the product level and then transact with some sort of mobile process. Now, that's the next journey for us is how do we actually do that and have it totally seamless. Um, whilst it's a very high-touch customer experience in terms of explaining products and all that sort of stuff, but once the decision's been made, how do you actually take, you know, might be a, a three-hour journey in the store to find the right products to make it only a, a five-minute journey to exit the, the store and yeah. you've got all the products that you need? I think it'd be remiss of me not to ask, now that we're talking about online retailers, you have kept Amazon at bay and lurking in the shadows for a, a long time. And I know, you know people are always thinking, oh, no, they'll get to baby bunting eventually. I, I know you believe that isn't the case, and, and I tend to agree with you, but I'd love, love to hear the thesis. So about over 70% of our products require Australian standards. So therefore, there's somewhat uh, protection about you know people just randomly importing baby goods into Australia. People still do do it, but um, there is a level of protection around that. The thing about Amazon, and, and they are a fantastic retailer. Yes, I don't, I, I don't ever want to say that they're not. They're a great logistics organisation. But we've very much put our own Amazon defensive strategy in play um, and we knew that, you know, we, we've been looking at Amazon, as you would know, for, for many, many years. I mean, it was one of the biggest things that we learned when we worked with, closely with TDM on the board is, you know, look internationally, look what they're doing and learn. Yeah. Yeah. Top 250 products, how do we stack up? You know, when I think the, 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 the exchange rate was $1.06 at the time. So, you know, it was a very real prospect that people Absolutely. could import directly from, from overseas. So we, we, we observed and monitored the model. Well, what are the things that are going to differentiate us? First of all, you still got to keep value. You still got to keep value. And therefore, the pricing equation, we can't afford to let others beat us on price. So, you know, investing in our EDLP model, investing in Best Buy, we need to do that, regardless whether that's Amazon's price or whether it's actually the little mum and dad shop down the corner. We, we want to make sure. Second thing is that service element. For a new parent, touching and feeling mm. the, the, the product, getting the, the tangible experience and the tactile experience. You know, when you buy a pram, are you going to have a second child? Is it going to fit inside your car? It's intimidating as a first Can you parent. fold it? Yeah, absolutely. Is it heavy? All those sorts of things are questions that you've got to actually experience. And our team members 
it's incumbent upon them to take that product out to the car and show people how it mm. works and does it fit in your car. And it's our job to win the sale and to win the customer because give them confidence about price, give them confidence about the service they're going to get, give them the quality product, that's to Australian standards. And then what we've wrapped around that now is a service model that says, you know, we'll fit the car seats for you, we'll have the right return mechanisms, um, we'll be conveniently located with our stores, we'll put the car seats, you know, you've got a car, you roll up and we can actually put the car seat in your car mm. and you can see it in action. We're not gonna pressure sell either. And that's the other thing that's most important is that in our business, whilst it's, it's easy to try and grow the sale by just add on selling, I'm very nervous when you start to add on sell for the sake of selling. Don't give the customer a bad experience because it'll come back to haunt you. Yeah. So sell them what they need. The good thing about it is that if you say you need a high chair in six months time, they'll come back and get the high chair from you. If we've given them a bad experience, they'll go somewhere else. But by and large, our NPS is showing that they come back into store. That's the joy of, of being able to stock wide uh, and, and have such a phenomenal range yeah. is that if they need something, they're coming yes, back to one stop shop. I mean, that's you know, that's the brand baby bunny, the one stop baby shop. I think the, the next thread I'd, I'd like to explore is is not necessarily about baby bunting specifically, but more your experiences as a CEO. Um, and, and you've seen what scaling a private business looks like. You've now been in the public markets almost five years. What are some of those pain points of, of being a public market CEO? Time. Um, it's it's very different. It was a first time CEO, so it was really nice to sort of go through the journey in a in a in a private company. But you know, the 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 board was very clear from day one when I started is that we will run it if we are a public company. Yeah. So all the disciplines, all the requirements of you know making sure all the committees were had, the minutes, so all the things that we needed. So the disciplines and the rigor around our our process was tight. Yeah. And I learned, you know, I had the training wheels on for a couple of years to, to really understand what that meant. And I had some great um, mentors and leadership in this space, whether it be through, you know, the likes of Barry or the likes of TDM and, and the partners that we worked with and others on the board who, who had actually had that public life experience. So we could, we could work through that. Did you underestimate the amount of rigour required even in, the, in that transition piece from, from private to public? I had seen what had happened at Kathmandu, so I, you know, we went from private to, to, to public, whilst I was only on the periphery of that. Um, I think I had some pretty good educators um, yeah. in, in the lead-ups. And you know, a, a point that I want to make is going through an experience like we did, the IPO, whilst it was a lot of work and a lot of extra overhead into the business, the thing that really came out to me was having the right people around the table. And I'm not, not only from our own internal team, because, you know, you just need to have that right, but, you know, to have the right lawyers, the right bankers, the right board, the right investors, you know, all those partners, good selection early on, yes. just made the process so much better. Because it can get messy. It can get messy for a variety of reasons, but we deal with all those people today and we have good laughs. Just like during the process, whilst it was a pressure cooker, you never lost your sense of who you were, your sense of humour. You just had to work hard, get the volume, get the right team around you. And, and you know, that, that, to me, that was critical. I mean, if, mm. if we'd got one of those wrong whether it be the legal or the banking or the advisory or, you know, we it would have made it a very tricky and difficult experience. But because everybody was harmonised, we had a great operating rhythm. We had people who'd been through IPOs from the from the CEO point of view, so Barry and, 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 and others on the board. And then you've also had the the experience of what, what TDM brought to the business having gone through the process before. It just worked. It was yeah. really, really... It was a pleasure to be a part of. It was a great listing. It continues yeah. to be a, <laughs> no, a, was, a great public good. company. It a, but it's, it's a team effort. It's, 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 you know, I'm just one of a big team. A lot of public company CEOs are always frustrated with their roles as 
investor relations CEOs. You are the public-facing person who has to front up half-yearly results, yearly results, and, and have these analysts ask questions. At the end of the day, you're a retailer. You love brands. You, are, you love selling to customers and owning that customer. It's as though the skill set has to be completely uh, almost flipped on its head. You need to be a good communicator, I'd suggest. I think that's one, one aspect. Two is I think you, you've got to keep your, your, your values very clear internally and, and externally, so, you know, not compromise on those. But also get the right team around you to help you in those scenarios. So, you know, your CFO is absolutely critical. And I'm, you know, very, very lucky that with the CFO that we, we have in our business and get, you know, we've got a, a, a company secretary and, and group legal counsel, you know, who provides absolute discipline and rigour around the process. And, and both of those individuals have actually then built teams around us mm. to help us to manage this exact process. We don't have a, you know, we don't have an, in, an investor relations company that we work with. We obviously work with media agencies from time to time and they've been very, very good. But my, my, my point is really for me to face into the analysts, to face into the investors, I walk in with a, a high degree of confidence that we're prepared. Mm. We know our business and so if, if you want to ask me a question about the retailing and the floor and what we're doing with our customers, I'm very comfortable about that. If you want to ask me about all the numbers, I understand the numbers but I've got a, a really good person on my right who can, you know, gets the detail, gets the numbers and can answer those sort of questions. It's a great case study for the CEO-CFO dynamic and the CFO is not just the numbers man but a, a right-hand man and, and you know... Uh, such a key figure to help run the business in the, in the public market. Absolutely. In the public space, you, you need that. And then the relationships that you build with the analysts, your shareholders and all that, I mean, that's, that's, that's so important. Um, and being made available. And one of the things we've actually been very clear about in, in our, and, and we've done this from day one, is give information to provide transparency so that you can always talk to something slightly off or you can point to a number and you can point to a data point that says, because we've actually explained that data point over a series of years. And, the consistency and, of yeah, it. Yeah, the consistency simple. of it. And, and you know, it's, it provides an element of rigour in our business and conversely it gives the investor the opportunity to, to really understand what makes our business tick. I'd love just to... Uh sort of wrap this up, you, some of your own reflections on, on the core lessons that you've learnt in your time as CEO and, and as that job has changed with the business scaling, as you say, over $350 million in, in sales now. Um, what, what are your own reflections on, on, on the lessons you've learnt? Well, the number one lesson is people and recruiting the right people around you. As I said, I don't think we've had any individual who hasn't been right for the time. But at times, it's right that there's a change as you grow. Having the right people in the room to help you through whatever the situation is, is, is the most rewarding lesson. And it's also, you know, when I, when I look back at how we go about recruiting people, you know, there's, you know, for when I recruit somebody, it's very rare that I'll just get an unknown person. Mm. You know, it'll be a referral, somebody who's actually I've worked with before, know people I've worked with, and, and, and getting those people because you actually get a good insight into them and the way they operate, and therefore you're not getting an unknown quantity. So everyone's got to fit. There's, there's a need to do that. So the lesson for me, first of all, as CEO, is make sure you've got the right bench strength and make sure you've got the right, right team. Keeping yourself feet on the ground. You know, I, I could if I wanted to, not visit stores and, you know, because there's enough to keep you busy every single day. Yeah. But the reality is in stores where the customers are, they're the ones who pay the bills every day. The store teams are the people who actually are engaging with those consumers and we've got to give them the support and, and respect that the store teams deserve. So actually being out there, and when I say store teams, I mean people like in the DC as well, where, yeah. you know, they're the ones who are supplying the, the stock in an accurate way to the stores so that we can service the customer. So actually not losing touch with what the business is about is, is another big lesson. And then, 
you know, making sure that you've got a board that you you can have a very open and 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 transparent relationship with. And I'm I'm blessed that our board is a is a retailing board. You know, mm. we've got some great retailers on the board, so I can I can get out there and you know, if I've got any question, I can tell you there's somebody on our board who's seen it, done it, conquered it, delivered it, um, won it. The importance of that yeah. can't be underestimated no. because, because people view boards often as just this governance box ticking exercise, but the, the value of a, a board with a growth mindset, with this sort of entrepreneurial spirit where they're thinking like owners of the business and this mentor-mentee relationship can develop between the board and the executive team is so powerful. Oh, it is. And our, our executive team all go to all board meetings at every single meeting, they have to report to the board. The the thing that, you know, you talk about investment, I mean, our, all our board members are invested in our company. So they should be. Yeah, yeah. And and, and all our leadership team yep. have shares in the company. Yeah. And then as you move through the organisation, we do an employee gift offer. So, you know, we, we give $1,000 gift worth of shares, you know, when the, when the, when the, when the results are right, we give $1,000 worth of shares down to anybody who's full-time or part-time, has been with our business for 12 months, and also long-term casuals. So we have ownership from the the chairman through to the person who's serving the customer. And I mean, that is Full so alignment. so powerful and aligned yeah. because when we do get a result and you know, you're gonna get a dividend. You, you've contributed, you own that little bit of baby bunting. And that's so, you know, that that is powerful stuff. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and so, you know, it, it's very easy to look at it. If you're looking at it from a spreadsheet point of view or a financial metrics point of view, guys, geez, you know, it's just another accounting. It just, it's not. It's actually ownership of the business. It's so, so important. Well said. Could not agree with you more. Is there any advice that you'd give yourself looking back? If, if you were to mentor, if... if if Matt Spencer came to Matt Spencer in 2011 and asked for some advice before taking the job, what would you what would you give that advice to yourself? I know it's kind of a cryptic question, but that's a that's a, a very very good question. At the, at the time, did you believe that you could execute yeah. what has been executed? Absolutely. It's funny though, because I was just looking at, you know, you, we reflected on, before we started this interview, just a bit about our, you know, strategy. And I said, you know, we've, we've got this, this plan that we've, we've been working to since 2009 and, you know, it's got eight key elements. And I was looking at the network plan and was talking about grow to 30 stores, you know, and I was thinking, wow. And, and I think there are things that I have learned that I didn't know when I started. As I said earlier, there was a lot of things around there's 50 things to do and I just wanted to do a whole lot of stuff. Um, the advice that I would, would, would give uh, Matt Spencer today again would be, you will have 50 things in your mind. Take, your time, take a little bit more time to, to synthesise that because if you didn't have the, the likes of the, the board we had or the chairman that we had at the time, you could have made some pretty tactical mm. errors in that space. So taking the time, making sure the strategy is very, very clear. I think one of the things that I learned, um, I would have done the values piece maybe a little bit earlier in our business. Uh, we, did an, we did an employee engagement survey a few years in and sort of one of the things that came out was, what are our values? Now, I've always worked on the basis that the values are pretty clear. We live it every day, we mm. feel it, but people really want to understand a little bit more about those values. And so I would have put that in there and sort of said, okay, as a values-based organisation, whilst internally I felt that, but I should have actually walked out and actually really put my stamp on up front saying, these are the values and these are the behaviours and the expectations of our business right from day one. I just assumed that because they were there, people would just continue on with that. Did, at that point in time, did you feel empowered to change them? You know, walking into a new job, it is hard to, to walk in and, and, and enact immediate change when it comes to, to values? Once again, uh, values aren't about me. So what I would Great have done answer. is, um, it's actually about the culture of the organisation. So in, if we look at our values today, that's not, I'm ne I didn't put those values on the table and say these are our values. I've had that before, by the way, in one of my other jobs that I worked in where, you know, we've got a, from overseas came a list of nine things and said, these are your values, son. It's not like that. We actually build your values up from the shop floor, from the DC, from the office work, 
the managers, and that actually then came back with a group of things that we had to do as a business and what we believed in. Sure, we had to synthesise all the bits of feedback into what does it look like into a few ideas, but they were a representation of what everybody's telling us. It wasn't what I was telling the organisation we should, we should be. It's a fantastic answer. Uh, and my last question is around Matt Spencer, the person. I, I, I'm always curious as to the routines or life hacks that super high performers uh, have sort of gained over time. Well, how do you unwind? How do you relax? How do you accumulate knowledge in, in short spaces of time considering that you are time poor? Well, what are, what are some of your high-performance routines? High-performance routines, nothing like my high-performance body, which is <laughs> a bit out of shape. Um, you know what? I, I'm a, a keen water sports person. So, you know, I swim, I do squad swimming, you know, three times a week, and that sort of centres you, you know. It's, it's actually one of the most social sports there is, but, uh, you know, I swim a lot. Um, love surfing, getting out there and just being in the waves and, you know, just, just being out with the kids having fun, you know, riding or whatever yeah. it might be. That's the release of energy. It doesn't mean the mind's not working. You know, you, mm. you, you're spending a lot of energy. I'm not a, a high-performing sportsman by any stretch of the imagination, but just that time of quality thinking time, you know, is, is great. It's really, really good. I'm lucky that the internet's come along because actually I can digest lots of information and recall it without actually having to... I, I don't get the time to read books like I'd like to. Mm. I just don't, I don't get that. So I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm living in this, this age where the information flow is, is, is fast. And then the one thing that I can say about myself is self-belief. I, I believe in the glass is half full and actually you can do anything. I'm not, not I'll never be an A-grade sportsman, but I can still hit a hockey ball around the field or I can still go for a surf, I can still go for a swim. I can run a company. It's it's not a, it's actually it's it's actually not. I'm not. I'm believe it or not. I'm not ambitious. It's just my desire to be the best I can be at what I do. And if I'm a bad swimmer who can only swim a 50 meter in X amount of seconds, that still could be the best I can do. But I still feel like I've achieved. Mm. So to me, it's I get my enjoyment from others. Uh, I get the enjoyment from seeing others succeed, but I also get pretty stoked when I see good headlines and, 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 and good things about the business that we've created as a, as a team. And that is something you have created. You've created a phenomenal business. You've been at the centre of that, and it's something that you should be incredibly proud of, and you've done it with the utmost of humility. So congratulations, and, and thank you so much for, for spending an hour with me. Thanks, Ed. I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed it, and... Uh, Look, as I say, it's all about the team. Eh? They're the ones who are delivering. I'm just helping them do it. <laughs> <laughs>